This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Ellen yashinsky Shoot. Ellen is a practitioner, consultant, and educator who has dedicated her life to helping individuals, families, and teams unlock their potential through her work as president of Empowerment Partners of Bingham Farms, a clinical social worker who provides psychotherapy to individuals, couples, and families, as well as workplace consultation, and the founder and former director of JCADA, the Jewish Coalition Against Domestic Abuse. She joins me today on Uncorking Your Story to talk about her latest book, What Drives You, How Our Family Dynamics Shape the People We Become. Welcome to Uncorking Your Story, Ellen. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate being here and you having me. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me and my audience today. Ellen, I'm curious, uh, where does your story as an author begin? Well, I hope people don't groan when they hear this, but it begins when I was born, and I'm going to fill you in from there. So my book talks about a family, and I use the metaphor of a car to represent a family. And so we all grow up within the context of this metaphorical car. So I grew up, I was the first child born to a couple, and this was a couple that had been separated throughout World War II and were finally reunited and decided to have a child, and they had me. And they were married for about 18 months when they got divorced. <clears throat> now, many people think that, oh, she was so young, doesn't really matter. But if you think about the metaphor of a car, when I was born, in my metaphorical car, my father was in the driver's seat, my mother was in the passenger seat next to him, and I was in the back seat 
as the first child. And that lasted for 18 months of my life. Now, the interesting thing is that after 18 months, my father left the car. Okay. In those days, we didn't really talk about divorce. And I was a baby. I was 18 months old. So no one was going to sit and try to explain this to me. But from my experience in the car, there was somebody in that driver's seat who was no longer there and wasn't really a part of my life after that. Then my mother got remarried and formed the car that I was in for my the rest of my growing up years. And the, the person that was in the driver's seat of that car was my second father. He ultimately adopted me. And again, my mother was in the front passenger seat and I was in the back seat. So here in this small amount of time in my early life, I have one person in the driver's seat and I don't have anybody in the driver's seat. And then another person comes. Probably we could say that my mother assumed the driver's seat in the interim, but then deferred. And then this other person comes to be in the driver's seat. So all of that makes an impression on us as human beings. Even though babies can't talk and we think they don't know what's going on, they absolutely know when someone has been there and then is gone and never to be heard again. So my role in the backseat of our metaphorical car was to follow the rules of the car. Every car has its rules. And in my car, the rule was an actual spoken rule. And that rule was little girls are to be seen and not heard. Now, other women of my generation can really relate to that because that's how little girls were thought of in many instances back when I was growing up. And so my role in the car was to be a good girl. In my car, you had to look pretty. Be a good girl, look pretty, and sit in the back seat and not make any noise, not have any needs, not um, contribute, just sit back there and look pretty. And so my childhood was spent as this girl in the back seat who didn't have a voice, wasn't really considered to be someone who was going to participate or actually play a role. My mother in the driver's seat was probably the driver of the car because even though my father sat in the driver's seat, she told him everything that he was supposed to do and he just listened to her. But I am the person that I am today from spending my childhood alone in the back seat of this car in many, many ways. In, in families where there are more members in the car, my husband is the youngest of five boys. In his metaphorical car growing up, I asked him, where did you sit in your car? And he responds that he sat in the way back of a station wagon that was pointed in the back. So his brothers, his four older brothers and his parents were up at the front of the car and he was in the back trying to, waving at people around him, trying to engage with somebody because nobody, he was seven years younger than his next oldest brother. 
And so there were the there were the four boys and then him seven years later. And he was just desperately trying to um, see, have people see him, notice him, wave back. And, and if you would meet my husband today, you would absolutely see that he's still sitting and waving and wants to get your attention. He's he's friends with, you know, the cashiers at the grocery stores, with the flight attendant. Um, he's just busy waving, trying to engage with people. That That is absolutely who he is. And each of his older brothers had their roles to play, to play in that car as well. One of them was the troublemaker. One of them, one of them was the good looking, successful guy. One of them had a disability. One of them, um, was the, the golden child. And, and even at this age, when my husband is together with his two remaining brothers, you can see these roles being played out. It is crazy. It's not conscious, but we carry it with us. And the reason why everyone has a role in their car is because the car has a job to do, and that is to take this group of people from today to tomorrow to the next day to the next day. And in order to do that job of keeping this family moving forward, everybody has to play their role in keeping the car going. And so my husband didn't want to be the oldest by himself in the back, but that's just where he was and he was relegated to it. And it has formed him just in the same way as my car formed me to be a person who didn't think what I had to say mattered, who didn't have a voice, who didn't feel like anyone was there to meet my needs, who learned to be extremely independent. And and I knew that if I wanted it, I was going to have to go for it and get it. Lots of good things come from our roles, as well as lots of things that can affect who we are for the rest of our lives. When when did the sort of the light bulb go off in your head? Um you know, and you may, maybe you said to yourself, you know, something's not working in my adult life or in my adult relationships. And, you know, how did you link that back to um, kind of your experiences just, you know, going back as that child in the back seat? Like, did, did you have a light bulb moment or? So I would tell you that my light bulb moment probably came when I was about, I, I want to say 11, 12. Um, my, I had a very unique family in that strictly coincidentally, both of my parents were also only children. So not only was I alone in the backseat, but the three of us were not part of an extended family. And so I didn't have opportunities to be in other people's cars with any kind of awareness. Until I got to be older and I started being in cars where my friends grew up and their cars were noisy and, and somebody was hitting somebody and their brother was obnoxious and, and it was just so much more lively and, and filled with, it wasn't certainly all pleasant, but these people were really sharing and you know, if you have more than one child, especially in some instances, more than two, 
when the kids outnumber the parents, the kids often can take over and set the rules. I always think that if I would have had a sibling, that sibling probably wouldn't have gone along with just being quiet and sitting there and the car would have had to change. But that was my light bulb, is that my growing up was different than other people's. And I carried that with me. I, I carried it with me, um, certainly through my education. Uh, you know, when I was in, I went to college, and when I was in college, it was the first time I had ever shared a bathroom with anyone. It was, it was just such a different existence living with more people around and and learning from them and having to deal with them, but also having them. And and since that experience, I had always strived to create groups around me. Um, yes. So that's what I would say. It, most of my clinical awareness came during my social work education and my subsequent work with people, hundreds and thousands of people, and understanding how this family dynamic determines so much of each person's existence and who they are and how they live it out. And the purpose of my book is to help people sort of come to a sense of, well, no wonder. That's how I learned that. I, I so often wish I had a voice. I, if you say something nasty to me, I will not come back at you. I, I just sort of sit here and try to make it through. I can't have a voice. Right. And I, and I hate that I can't, but I also have tremendous compassion now since doing this work around it of why I don't have a voice. And so I'm able to give myself some grace. The funny thing is, is that my whole adult life between working directly with people, being an educator, I taught social work at University of Michigan for 23 years, has been about giving me a sanctioned place to have a voice where no one's going to question, no one's going to stop me from talking. So it's, it's the only way that I can have a voice. But yeah, I know this in my own life. Um, you know, I was uh, going through some, um, I would say, I would call them challenges in, in my marriage. And um, it was really rooted in the fact that I didn't feel like I could speak up or, or have a voice in kind of what was kind of going on around me. Um, I, I didn't stand up for myself. Um, and that, that kind of bubbled up until there was like this big sort of, I call it a crisis moment. Yes. And then I had to go back and, and do a lot of work on myself because, you know, relatively well-adjusted person came from a really good, loving family. Sure. And, and, and what you learn is that coming from a loving family doesn't sort of absolve you from oh, no. you know, and it's anything that happens life. within that family. And, you know, what, what I realized after doing a lot of work and I went to this great program, um, in California, that's really intensive men's program was, you know, I felt unseen for most of my childhood. And the reason for that is, you know, out of the four kids in my family, I have a twin brother. We have an older brother. Uh, we have an older sister. And we were the babies of the family, seven years difference between our sister mm. and us, and then nine years with our brothers. So they were sort of not really around when we were growing up. 
Uh, although my sister will tell me that it was her job to bathe us all the time. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure she fun. remembers that. <laughs> she certainly does. Yeah. Um, but like, but and then between me and my twin brother, like my twin brother was sick all the time. So my mother and a lot, a lot of her attention was with him. My father was always traveling for work. So, you know, the other two were around, but more independent. So it was really me and my grandmother who were spending a lot of time together. Mm. And from a very young age, I learned how to cook. I mean, I'm talking four or five years old. She's sitting me down showing the Italian, showing me the man yeah. like the tomato sauce. And, <laughs> and, 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 you know, by the time I was 10, I didn't need anybody else around me. Uh -huh. uh, I was fiercely independent. Um, but I also, I lived in a, in a situation where you, you say, you know, little girls should be seen and not heard. Yes. There was no, there was no arguing with the rule of the house. And um, if I ever pushed back on anything, if I ever expressed myself or if I was sad about something, you know, my parents, the, the, the good Catholics that they were kept saying things like, well, just offer it up for the souls of purgatory. You know, suffering is okay. And I'm like, well, okay, so we're, so I, I have to suffer. But somebody else didn't get into heaven. What about me? So that, I mean, all of these, so we're talking 40 plus years of this, um, got to a point where, and I needed to unpack all of that. And once I did, and once I realized that, hey, you know, I, I am seen or I should be seen, you know, I am worth something. Um, I do matter. Really, that's kind of what it came down to. Then I was able to turn a lot of things that were negative in my life around. Um, but I needed that realization and working into like digging into family systems and and, you know, parts of self was critically important for me in that process. Yeah, that that's just a wonderful example. I, I would say that you deserve to be seen, that all humans deserve to be seen. And our parents have their very best intentions and do the best that they can. This is not about parent blaming. This yeah. is only about increasing our own self-compassion for why I can't speak up, why I can't say what I need. The, the simple answer is you learned that. Now, it might not have been anyone's intention for you to learn that, but that's just what you learn Be, because children interpret the world in a very, very different way than their parents who are, who are doing things that we're making sense of in ways that they don't expect us to. And I think very often there comes a crisis point in people's lives where they, where they realize that they are doing things in a way that, uh, that are not working out for them. So I would say, um, in, in the early part of my social work career, I did a lot of parent training. And I would find over and over and over again that what came out in this parent training were things that each of these individual parents sort of needed to work on in themselves. That was before my car idea, but things that they had learned in the car that were not working for them, either in their marriage or raising their children. Those are the two primary things that put on display areas where we, what we learned is no longer serving us. Yeah. Right. It's, and, and, you know, you know, sometimes I think some of us have a tendency to think, you know, well, I had a happy childhood. Why do I feel this way now? Well, we don't need to have, 
you know, experienced, you know, physical or even emotional abuse nope. to, to have some room to grow in our relationships based on the dynamics of our families of origin. And, and I, I, lo- I love what you have to say. It's not about shaming or blaming parents, because if you think about it, our parents, you know, have a different set of tools available to them than, than we do now. Um, you know, you mentioned your parents were, were separated, um, you know, during World War II. And just think about like the, what, what the emotional experience they had at that part of their, I'm assuming it was a young part of their lives. Yes. Um, yes. You know, just, and then, you know, how do you raise a family after experience that kind of trauma? So, you know, I, th- I think some of us, you know, there is this this belief or belief this this misconception about therapy is all about blaming the parents and specifically it's about blaming the mother. Um, it's really not about blame. It's more about understanding. Um, and I think we need to give our parents a little bit of grace because they certainly don't. You know, the generations my parents came from. I mean, look, my my father was born in 1933. You know, different, completely different social experience growing up than I had being born in 1974. Yes, that's that's really true. The The world is a very different place now than it was. And many of the people that I work with um, came from homes where there were lots of rules or shoulds, call them shoulds, and they think that they're going to grow up and impose those same shoulds on their kids, or they don't think. they We just do it by rote, except Today's children live in a much more free world than than their generation grew up. And their kids are likely not going to sit by and just be quiet and shut down. You know what I mean? And so then the parents are in this quandary. Well, I don't know what to do with the child that is speaking up, is asking me, is telling me what they want. Because I never did that as a child. And I thought children weren't supposed to do that. Um, and, and so very, I like, I love what you said about not being seen. That is the most common thing that I talk to clients about is about not being seen and also talk to them about helping them try to make sure that their children feel seen. And feeling seen is not the same as doing the right thing. It's about parents who understand what's going on for them emotionally, who are able to validate that as much as they can, who are there to be supportive, who will help them get through difficulties, um, rather than just having a set of standards that the kids are supposed to meet. Like when they grew up, when I grew up, it was just that. You're supposed to look a certain way. You're supposed to do a certain way at school. In my family, it was you go to college. After college, you get married. I mean, the summer after I graduated college, me and eight other of my friends got married that summer to all people that we met in college. Um, I, I actually think that probably half of those marriages, including mine, didn't make it. But um, that's just what we were programmed to do. I, I, there was, there was just no choice. You never thought about what else am I going to do? But kids today do think about what else am I going to do? 
There's like way more out there. Yes, it is a very different generation, which requires different parenting. My parents absolutely did the best that they could. Um, I didn't, I always felt like I wasn't seen. Well, I wouldn't say that I felt like I wasn't seen. I felt like I wasn't valued for who I was because I didn't fit into their box of what a little girl should be, which was a lot about looks. Um, I didn't fit into that and looks box. And I hear that so much from women today who, who grew up with some kind of standard around their looks and they never felt like they were good enough in that way. But we all grow up with, with the, with a sense of not good enough in certain ways. And for most of us, we absorb it because we do feel good enough in many other ways. But for some kids, life is perpetually about trying to prove that they're okay and worthy for some adults. And I'm sure you know plenty of people like this. They, they can't earn enough money. They can't buy enough things. They can't have a nice enough house. They can't. And whatever it is in any culture, it's just somebody who's never satisfied with themselves. Um, and so, yes, it is the only way to fix that is to develop a sense of compassion for ourselves and to know that we're okay. The compassion has to start with us. And then I like to take it to the parents and have compassion for them. Ultimately, at this age, I feel so sad for my parents that they just never appreciated this person who I became. They didn't under, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. It wasn't in their wheelhouse that I was going to be this person. They thought that, you know, you only have value if you have money and if you look a certain way. And that was just how they thought. But I also find that developing the compassion can sometimes be so powerful when we develop it for our siblings and that they were only playing the role that they played in their family. And their role was their identity just the same as yours. So when you said your sister said she was responsible for giving you guys baths, I mean, that tells me a little bit about her role in the family. Yeah. The oldest she, daughter. Yeah. She, she, she still plays the role of like bringing us all together. I mean, when we have family get togethers, it's, you know, it's at Mia's house. And, and yes. I, and I noticed, you know, I, I, I feel myself needing to have a little bit more compassion for my twin brother because he was so needy and was always looking and to, to this day is always looking for external validation from all of us. I mean, just the amount of selfies I get from him on a daily basis, looking mm. for some kind of approval to the point where it's become like, it's sad to say, like a little running joke within the family. It's like, <laughs> Uncle Jimmy said another selfie. <laughs> but, I, but I have to have compassion for what he's going through, just knowing the insights I've had into my own selves. Yes, we're lucky when we can develop compassion because the more compassion we have, the less people drive us crazy and the less unhappy we are. Um, it's all kind of rooted in that. I, yeah. I want to say something about um, a child. Every Every car has their seats. And some cars have a seat that ha has a sick child in it. Um, and that was his role in your car. You know, some 
some cars have a seat for a, a, a sick adult. When, when people get divorced, they have to now navigate two cars and they may play different roles in each of those cars. And then if one or both of their parents recouple and they be then become part of blended families and lots of kids become blended on this side and blended on this side. And now all of a sudden they're not the oldest kid in the car anymore, or they're not the youngest kid in the car anymore, or they're not the only girl or the only boy. And so the roles, um, which can give us a sense of stability. I mean, it, it helped me to feel safe to know that I could just sit in the back seat and keep my mouth shut, you know? But then if I had to go into another car where it was more open and it was maybe demanded of me that I talk or a car that had three siblings, I never had to do that. But those things are really hard and all of it contributes to how we see ourselves and how we think of ourselves. I left my car also feeling like I didn't matter. And um, that's a painful thing for, for an adult human to feel like I don't matter. And I, I tell people all the time, you do matter. And they say, oh, yeah, I, I'm paying you for you to say that to me. And I say, no, it's not about that. You do matter simply because you're a living human being. You do yeah. matter. And, and, and those kind of basic things that I am okay, I am important, I do have something to say. A lot of times children don't get that in their cars. Yeah. Do, and, and, and I was yeah. going to say, like, just that, that limiting belief of I don't matter does creep in to so many different aspects of your life. I mean, and not just your romantic relationships, your interpersonal relationships, but that limiting belief, it's going to affect your career performance. Absolutely. You're, you're walking around giving off this low frequency energy that I don't matter. And people will pick up on that. No yes. matter how, how you dress or how you look, they will pick up on that. It's going to limit your performance. I noticed after I started this work myself, my performance started to um, kind of go off the charts. Like I, I started to get, you know, as a self-employed individual at the time, I started attracting more clients and I was, I was busier than I ever was after, you know, after kind of doing that work and embracing some new beliefs to myself. So just ha ha having that turn and, and, and turning it around from, I don't matter to, I do matter. And I do matter because I'm here and I'm here for a purpose. Now it might take a little while to figure out what your purpose is in life. Uh, right. <laughs> but, but knowing that you came here for a purpose and that you're ultimately going to have a purpose in, in this life will will change how you show up in your life. I completely agree. I I also think that along with the not mattering, that there's a lot of people who grow up with developing a sense that they don't get to. I don't I don't get to be smart like my sister. I don't get to be beautiful like my cousin. I don't get to be successful like so-and-so and that it's a chronic belief um that 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 even if they try they it won't it won't work out for them that that's a lot of between i don't matter and i don't get to if you 
had this underlying belief, and it's always unconscious. Most people don't put words to it that I don't get to. You're not going to try hard at things because you only try hard at things because you think I get to be successful. I get to put myself into this. But that's when I do therapy with people who have one or both of those beliefs, we have to fix that first before we can fix any problem kind of thing. Um, everybody gets to. Everybody gets to. Not everybody gets everything they want, but everybody gets to try and everybody gets to put themselves out there and everybody gets to believe that they're entitled to what they deserve. I am curious. I mean, we, we talk a lot. We've been talking a lot about family dynamics. Um, I imagine when somebody is working with you, even someone going through your your book, they say to themselves, well, I've got to now address these dynamics. I'm aware that this is why I am the way I am. But now I've got to take some action on it. And I'm curious, what are some of the challenges people face where they come back to you and tell you, hey, look, this, this has been challenging doing X, Y, and Z. What are the challenges people tend to face when addressing family dynamics? So I think that very often people feel bad that they didn't do it before. Why did it take me all this time to understand this? And I help people understand that I view our lives as a path and that we needed every step in this path to be exactly as it was in order for us to be here today. And today you have an opportunity to look at it differently. So there's a lot of shame and guilt that we have to work through that I didn't do this sooner. How come, um, how come I didn't? A lot of times there's anger to work through. But when people face roadblocks, a roadblock is always some kind of restrictive belief about themselves, about their capabilities, about other people, about the world being a fair and just place. Um, and someone who grows up in a situation where they feel like their brothers and sisters were all smarter than them or whatever than them, um, they, they have to come to a place of understanding that that thing that they learned that assumption that they learned in their car is just not the truth. It's just not. Most of what we learn in our cars, we incorporate into our, our brains and our bodies, and it lives in us in, in a very childlike way. And I'm sure you can identify times when you go into a whole cycle of negative thoughts. I can't do that. What's wrong? This is blah, 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 on and on. We all have, I call them hamster wheels in our head that start going. The hamster wheels are really just there to try to protect us. So it says, oh, don't do that. You're not going to be, you know, they, they're discouraging. They don't count our adult um, resources and that we have a much more fully developed brain now that we can figure things out. And, and so I have to help people quiet down those thoughts to recognize that that's just a thought. It's not the truth because 
and help them identify what the truth is. And the truth is always that we could think it through, that we could handle it a different way than we have. And eventually people want to. We have to address whatever the roadblock is. It's always some negative leftover of an assumption that they made that's still holding them back. I'm curious on your take on this because I've heard it a lot in some of the things that I've been reading recently. Do thoughts or in what ways can thoughts become things? In other words, in what ways can our thoughts manifest into something that we sort of brought about because of our way of thinking? Is is there, oh. such a, is there a truth to that? So I believe in the self-fulfilling prophecy. If you believe that you're, you are somehow flawed or defective or don't have everything that you should have. People say to me all the time, I just don't have, I don't have enough self-esteem as if self-esteem is something that's like meted out. Um, <laughs> and I say to them, self-esteem isn't a thing. Self-esteem is an action. It's the action of esteeming yourself and anyone can do that. Okay. It's just a simple conversation. So um, I, I, I think that my role is always to, to come to understand that you are only doing, what you're doing is reflecting who you think you are. And I'm going to help you to come to the most encouraging, optimistic, hopeful person that you could be. And you get to just because you're alive and you're a human. Those voices in our heads try to keep us from getting hurt. But often we have to push past and we have to say, I'm okay. I can do this now. I can do it. You don't have to protect me. I got it. Yeah, but I, th I think it's it's important to acknowledge those voices in your head, right? Because you know they they are parts of self, and they are their intent is positive, right? Their intent isn't to hold you back; it's to protect you from getting hurt. Yes. And one thing, you know, if there's anything I've learned about, let's say, training for a half marathon, which is something I've done a few times, you actually have to get hurt. You actually have to feel pain. You have to um, have, you know, some kind of thing to push through in order to get better um so it, it's almost like yeah i understand why these parts of self might want to protect us but it, sometimes it's only through failure or through setback that we can actually grow and, and get into a place where we wouldn't have gone had we not had that experience i completely agree with you and i would apply that to relationships as well. You have to have pain in a relationship to go grow through it. It's, it's what will bring you closer. It's what will advance any relationship. It's, it's what is real. Life is not, I think a lot of people grow up with this belief that if they, they pick the right person, life's going to be perfect. And there's no such thing as perfect, first of all, and life is hard and it's painful and it's not because you're bad. It's because that's just life. 
And our task is to figure out how to get through the pain. Now, the way that we get through the pain, going back to the beginning of what you just said, is those negative thoughts in our head need to be soothed. That's what the self-compassion is. People hate those thoughts. They want to use a fire extinguisher and get rid of them. But I talk to people about soothing them. So your voices are really loud right now. Could you have an internal conversation and just say to them, we're okay. It's okay. Look, right now we can look around. There is no danger. You don't have to warn me. We're good. I I want them to appreciate those thoughts, but I don't want them to direct their lives. Yeah. 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 That's, uh, that's wonderful. Um, you know, as we, as we wrap up here, Ellen, I'm curious, um, what did you learn about yourself from, uh, learn about yourself through writing this book? I learned uh, that, I learned that what I have to say is valuable. And I resisted writing this book for a long time. I taught what's in this book for 20 years. I created it a long time ago. And my husband told me, you got to write this. You got to write this. And I, I couldn't imagine just having it on a page somewhere and not being able to deliver it in person. Because to me, it's all about the in-person relationship, all about it. But he finally convinced me that I could write it on the page and it would have value. And for someone who never thought they were enough or valuable or who had what to say, I really came to understand that I do have what to say. And I, I know that what I have to say is important and, and could be, is, is and has been really useful to people. I see it all the time. So I have uh, a couple of questions that were inspired by your metaphor okay. um, of, of the car. So, um, you know, and part of this came to me because you were talking about self-esteem and, and how people, some people might say, I don't have enough self-esteem and, and it's not something that has levels inside us, which, which got me to thinking, you know, self-esteem is not like putting fuel in the tank, right? It's, right. Um, but what I'm curious about is what is the fuel in the tank? In this metaphor, what is the fuel in the tank? That's a really, really good question. I believe the fuel in the tank is love, whether it be self-love or other love, whether it be individual love between two people or feeling part of a community or um, however you, you want to phrase it, I, I just think that we, we need that. We need, I think that humans really need it. And I think that often what we do actually prevents us from getting it. And we don't know that. Um, so that's what I would say. Love. I think that we all deserve someone who hears us. Someone who sees us for the most part, you know, there's no partner that isn't annoying. Um, there's no partner that 
We don't want to roll our eyes and like throw them against a wall at times, but, but that, but to have somebody who sees us, who validates our existence just by that, um, I, that's, that's certainly what fills my tank. I think it's, it's a perfect answer. I can't think of a better answer. Um, this next question might be lightly harder. Uh, if love is the fuel in the tank, what is the exhaust? What's coming out of, of the exhaust pipe? Yeah, it, that's not hard for me at all to answer. What comes out of the exhaust pipe is fear. Because it, fear is at the root of all of our negative thinking, all of our roadblocks, because we, we, we learn to be afraid. Most of us had afraid parents who, who taught us in some way, um, that we need to, we need to watch out. We need to take care. And if we didn't have afraid parents, we maybe had absent parents who, who didn't also teach us that we were competent and that we would figure it out. So for so many people, it is about allowing our fears, helping ourselves to quiet our fears and allowing them to exit out of the body. I do a lot of breath work. And when I take a deep breath in, I believe that I'm breathing in love and I'm exhaling fear. That's wonderful. I'm going to, I'm going to do that this afternoon, right when we get off this call. Okay. Well, after, <laughs> after you do it, if you could close your eyes while you're doing it, just take a deep breath in and, and, and blow the air out and then open your eyes and look around yourself and say, at this moment, is there anything to be afraid of? The answer is usually no. Because if there was something to be afraid of in that morning, you wouldn't be doing a breathing exercise. You would be responding to that. <laughs> right. So, yes. Right. And that's how we settle our bodies down. That's how we quiet our voices is by saying, okay, I'm okay. It's okay right now. There's no life and death at this moment for me. I'm safe. I'm okay. Ellen, this has been such a fascinating conversation, um, but I do want to share with our audience where they can buy What Drives You, how our family dynamics shape the people we become. So, Ellen, where can people buy your book? The book is on Amazon. Um, it's, it's a small, easy-to-read workbook, and it's less than 100 pages long, but, and, and people work through it. It's, it's, very, very powerful and enlightening for most people. It's on Amazon or any bookstore can get it for you. And is there any math in the workbook? Because when I hear workbook, <laughs> I think math. Is there any math in this workbook? No, the workbook is all about asking you to envision your car and what feelings you might have felt and um, what happens when when you feel this way and when you feel that way. And you don't have to really work on it. It just offers questions to get your minds thinking. Well, very good. Uh, so mm -hmm. anyone in, in my audience who's afraid of math, have no fear. Oh, uh, for, for sure. You will not be doing long division or solving quadratic equations. Uh, no. Ellen, do you have a, a website or social media where people can do some more digging on you if they're so inclined? Yes, for sure. It's ellenyshoot.com. E-L-L-E-N-Y-C-H-U-T-E. -E. It's my website. You'll find I have podcasts on there. Um, I am 
Uh, you can order my book on there also and a lot of other really useful stuff. Very good. Alan, I will be sure to put that. And I did dig up some uh, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn profiles for you. I'll be sure to put yes. all of that and a link to the book in our show notes so people can easily find what they're looking for and make Pono from you too happy. Uh, Ellen, thank you so much for stopping by Uncorking Your Story and letting me uncork yours. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.